Hi, I'm John Foster. Hi, I'm Josh White. And this is Left to Burn, a podcast brought to you by thebattleground.eu. We've been off for a while. Mostly it's been poor scheduling on our part, although we have been out fighting the class war. Naturally. I know Josh has been on the barricades. I've been socked up in my Garrett apartment writing political tracts to uh, encourage the masses to something, something, I don't know. So a lot to talk about today. We we mentioned in previous episodes that we were going to talk about political solidarity on the right, which we're going to get to in a minute. But I thought we might talk briefly about the elections that are coming up in Northern Ireland. They're scheduled for May 18th, which is two weeks after the elections in the rest of the UK, I think probably so they can stock up on fire control equipment in case the province goes up in flames. About which I'm, you know, I'm sort of joking, but I'm sort of not. I mean, the Northern Irish politics have been dysfunctional. I mean, it's weird to say dysfunctional about Northern Irish politics because they're the dictionary definition of dysfunctional in a lot of respects. But Stormont has been dysfunctional ever since the elections a couple of years ago when it turned out that Sinn Féin would have to be the leading party in a coalition government, which the loyalist parties were not cool with. I mean, it's they've been sort of making noises recently about how their problem with Stormont or one of their big problems with Stormont is the the Windsor agreements. But in fact, I think it's fairly clear that their larger problem is that they don't want to be part of a government in which Sinn Féin is the leading party. Yeah, it looks like Sinn Féin's position will probably hold in this election and that they'll retain their kind of dominant position in the in the coalition that will not exist because the DUP will refuse to work with them. Again, that's most likely going to be the outcome, I think. And the history of this is pretty significant because the DUP worked with Sinn Féin and other Republican parties in governments on and off for 20 years, really, since the Good Friday Agreement. But originally, the DUP was the opposition to the loyalist establishment for a long time, the UUP, and they usurped them over time, partly thanks to their hardline positioning and their uncompromising stance on the peace agreement and all kinds of other things in Northern Ireland, cultural issues and so on. And to some extent, they still have that reputation. And that's why they are holding out in this standoff. But they are probably very worried about a force to the right of them usurping them because they know how brittle they are in some ways. They have to hold together their base, even though it's at odds with a long-term economic strategy for Northern Ireland. It's at odds with political stability that would favour their power and influence would also ultimately help kind of railroad Sinn Féin into a government that they that they can't really use to secure a border poll, let's say, under unless certain conditions are met. But again, this is all this is a testament to the extent to which the political system in Northern Ireland really does need to be overhauled. That's been true for decades. <laughs> One of the sort of peculiarities of politics of Northern Ireland right now, I mean, I, I haven't looked at the polling data, but I'm fairly certain just based on the what's been coming out in the media that Sinn Féin is probably going to maintain its percentage. The DUP, I think, has hemorrhaged as much as they're likely to hemorrhage, although you're right, TUV might outflank them to the right. I mean, that's certainly the DUP's biggest concern politically right now, as it is so often with these right-wing populist political entities that they're always kind of worried that someone even crazier is going to show up further off to the fringe and, and deplete their vote count. And probably also, if there is a growth party right now, it's probably going to be the alliance who are sort of the repository of the hopes and dreams of the segment of the population in Northern Ireland who aren't obsessed with either tricolor flags 
or with the fear of being shunted into a 32-county republic. Sinn Féin has probably done the best job of all the Northern Irish legacy parties of transforming itself into a non-crazy political entity, which sounds weird to say given their historical connection with the Irish Republican Army. But in fact, they've really done, I think, a pretty good job, both in Northern Ireland and in the Republic, of transforming themselves into a populist party, sort of the moderate left, that cares about the bread and butter issues actually relevant to the day-to-day lives of the community rather than the border poll, which, I mean, it's still in their electoral literature, and and I probably will be forever, but the prospect of a 32-county republic, I think, is farther away in a lot of respects than, I mean, it's not really, I don't think, part of the day-to-day politics in the way that it was in the long history of Sinn Féin as a political party. But I mean, it's a weird time in Northern Ireland. We had Joe Biden, the U.S. president there a couple of weeks ago, proposing a $6 billion aid package to a province of the United Kingdom. You know, and this is not some benighted third world country to use the terminology of the Cold War. This is not like an aid package on the model of things that the United States has done for decades when we weren't actually militarily overthrowing their government or what have you. But it's weird that the U.S. president is out there offering $6 billion in economic aid to Northern Ireland at this moment when Northern Ireland, on the basis of the Windsor agreements, has the prospect of having kind of the best of both worlds, of having relatively unfettered trade with the United Kingdom, but also having relatively unfettered trade with the EU. And at the same time, there is the prospect that if Stormont could be made to work, you would have for the first time in forever a political and economic process of development in the region that has the prospect of spreading the benefits of viable institutions to both communities in a way that hadn't been the case when, to a great extent, the political organization of Northern Ireland was predicated on limiting economic growth to the loyalist unionist community on the one hand, suppressing economic growth in the nationalist community, in part as a way of getting some of them to to emigrate to maintain the demographic power of the unionist communities. Not to say that economic development, not to say that functioning bourgeois political institutions are the thing that's going to fix everybody's problems, but they're definitely an improvement on the bad old days of kneecappings and periodic mass casualty events when politics was being carried out on a basis that was brutal even by the standards of how things had been in Ireland in the long history of relations between Ireland and the rest of the United Kingdom. So, but I think it's an interesting thing too, and this gets to sort of what I, I think we, what we wanted to talk about more generally, that there's an interesting ideological piece to this too, that part of what the DUP is doing, part of what the DUP is trying to preserve is this ideological grasp on the loyalist communities, on the unionist communities. And they're very successful in doing it. I mean, really, they managed to devour a large proportion of the UUP electorate. They've managed to fight off TUV, at least for now, although it's be interesting to see how things develop with this election and in subsequent elections. But the kind of interesting thing, I think, more generally is there's a political solidarity that the right manages to achieve that seems hard for the left to achieve for a number of reasons. I and mean, partly it's been that way. Well, it's always been that way. <laughs> I rewatched a couple of weeks ago, The Life of Brian, And there's that moment when they're in the Coliseum or whatever, and Brian is like, well, I'm looking for the People's Liberation Front of Palestine, whichever one, and they're like, oh, he's over there. 
the joke about the divisive nature of the British left, the British new left, and how there's these increasingly small groups. Whereas the right seems to manage for some reason to have a political ideological solidarity that for some reason we can't seem to manage. And it's not like I want to imitate them. But I mean, Donald Trump is a perfect example. I know a lot of people, I live in a county in the United States that's very red, and there's a lot of evangelicals around here. And you talk to them like, where did Jesus talk about thou shalt grab them by the pussy? And they sort of shrug their shoulders and just like, well, Donald Trump is accomplishing, he's a godly man in the sense that objectively speaking, he's accomplishing things that we want done. Whereas people on the left have to argue constantly about like, okay, at some point you have to be okay with casting a tactical ballot. There just doesn't seem to be that sort of collective ideological consciousness to try and move things forward, given that the political possibilities are what they are currently. I mean, we just have to admit that they're what they are and work with the tools that we have as opposed to wishing that things were different or insisting on, I don't know, I, I, don't, I don't want to come off as one of these people who's like, well, the left should just get over itself and be okay with sexist, racist, whatever. No, I don't think that, obviously. But what I do think is that we need to be more conscious of the tactics that we're willing to use and look at the right and see, like, why is it that they managed to maintain this kind of ideological solidarity that seems kind of out of reach for us? I mean, am I off base on this? Do you think, do you think I'm full of it or what's up? I, th I think the left could always do with more solidarity. I think that's fair to say. We are crippled by sectarianism. It, it's true. It's a cliche. That's why. It's so true. That's why it is a cliche. Right. And I mean, partly it's just, it's, it's strategic and structural, right? That's the obvious point to make, I think, in all of this, that it's easy to defend a system and a status quo than it is to tear it down and replace it with something better. So strategically, groups like the DUP or even the Conservative Party in Britain or the Republican Party in the US, they can, they can afford to be quite obstructionist and so on. And their strategy can hold together because they're on the side of something that already exists. Whereas the left, when it's obstructionist, sometimes it just destroys itself, depending on what it's doing, obviously. You know, you have to get by context. If you look at the Labour Party in Britain, the left failed, unfortunately, to change that institution, even though it had the leadership and kind of for a while had the NEC. It really failed to transform the party into kind of bulldoze to power. If you look at the Conservative Party and the pro-Brexit elements, it's completely the opposite. They've completely taken over, and now the Tory party is more and more a kind of middle-class revolt party, which is also what the DUP is in its own way in a Northern Irish context, which ironically puts it at odds with British Tories. But that's, again, because its solidarity is within Northern Ireland among Protestants, right-wing Protestants anyway. It's not really about the affiliation to the UK in a way. That's, that's again, one of the paradoxes here. Right. That loyalism, of course, loyalism is a better way of describing their kind of ideological framework than unionism, because actually loyalism goes much further than the existing institutions of the British state. It, it's a kind of ahistorical ideological phenomena. Right. I mean, the question that you always want to ask is, to what are they being loyal? And it's funny because periodically the British government itself has asked that question, although not very seriously. And just to be clear, there's, there's a kind of discourse that I want to make sure that we're not engaging in or that I want to make clear that we're not engaging in. When new social movements arose, there was a very regressive feeling among 
some sections on the left, like, oh, you know, the feminists, black liberation people, if they would just get on board, they're concerned with their own issues and they don't care about the broader left. And that was just wrongheaded. That was a symptom of the failure of the left to think seriously about issues of gender. That was a, a symptom of a failure on the left to think seriously about issues of race. One that persists. It's complicated. And so what clearly we're not saying is all these people who are focused on gender issues, all these people who are focused on issues of racial justice or whatever, need to sort of get on the team. That's clearly not not right. The left, as a sort of larger political entity, has to think through questions of race, questions of gender, questions of how it relates to the LGBTQ plus communities. And by the same token, I mean, it's, it's interesting how the, the right politicians on the right seem sort of connected to a kind of imaginary. So Donald Trump, people look at him and like, well, how can Donald Trump be this populist icon? Because he's not like the people in his base on some account of what his base is. But, but it's because like a lot of people on the right look at him and be like, you know, there's that comment that H.L. Mencken, I think, made about, you know, the problem with Americans is that they think of themselves as temporarily embarrassed millionaires. And people on the right look at Donald Trump and they're like, well, that's what I want to be. The whole porn star thing. You know, they're like, well, I wish I could be having sex with a porn star. It's, it's okay that he's paying her off. The prudes on the left are obsessed with whatever. But in fact, like, wouldn't you want to be sleeping with a porn star? I mean, that's, I think what, I think that, you know, he's part of that kind of imaginary. And it, it's weird because you don't see that quite so much in Europe. I mean, there's more Rishi Sunak. We were talking a little while ago about Rishi Sunak being more of a kind of technocratic politician. Macron, same way. Schultz in, in Germany, same way, these guys who are meant to be kind of, you know, fixing the the nuts and bolts and not being particularly ideologically inclined or what have you. You know, Margaret Thatcher. Margaret Thatcher was like everybody's severe mama, waving her finger at you for spending too much money, or and that I think too was a part of a kind of political imaginary. I mean, Tony Blair sort of with that kind of cool Britannia thing, which disintegrated pretty quickly because it became pretty clear that he was uncool. But whatever. There was a moment at which that sort of tapped into a kind of imaginary of the center of the moderate left. Is it just that we lack imagination? I mean, what's our problem? It's a good question. I mean, the we've had leadership figures who have enthralled people's. Well, we've had we've had leaders like Jeremy Corbyn, and in the US, you've had Bernie Sanders. In Europe, we've had people like Jean Luc Mélenchon in, in France, for example. None of these figures have made it to power. Uh, but they have mobilized an awful lot of people and mobilized a lot of a lot of energy in their societies. Let's put it that way. Where that goes is is all of a question. But why they didn't break through and why they didn't kind of capture the kind of I don't know what you want to call it the kind of fantasy element that people like Trump and others have captured. To, to some extent, I think it's it's just that they were very different politicians. You know, I think Corbyn definitely was. Yeah, Corbyn's a kind of anti-charismatic charismatic figure right. <laughs> his charisma is anti-charisma there's an element of, of that in bernie sanders too i mean i think for for many of the same reasons yeah absolutely i think you know maybe melanchon in france is the closest you would get to someone who kind of is able to wield that kind of fantasy element but it's it's always eluded the left to some degree yeah at least in at least in these countries I mean, part of the problem too is that liberal parties always want to attack to the right I mean, oh, yeah. I had this, I had a very good friend who's a sort of a nice guy, but a kind of a blue dog Democrat. And he was talking about how the Democratic Party had to get shot of 
Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and, and Ilhan Omar because they were giving the Republicans grist for their the Democrats are really communists thing. And I'm just like, I, th I think that's bullshit for, for a couple of reasons. I was giving a talk about John Marshall, who was the fourth chief justice of the Supreme Court. And there was a sort of discussion period afterward during which somebody started going off about Hillary Clinton and how if you looked at the things that Hillary Clinton said, they were directly drawn out of the Communist Manifesto, which is insane. I mean, really clearly, Hillary Clinton is arguably to the right of Ronald Reagan, certainly a centrist, pro-capitalist, whatever the idea that she's some kind of socialist is bizarre in the extreme, but then perhaps that's just an indication of the weird fantasy world in which the United States, the politics in the United States takes place. But, you know, I was saying to this friend of mine, would do no good to get rid of Ocasio-Cortez, to get rid of Ilhan Omar, or whoever else, because that's not the point. The point is, it, it's not about them. If you got rid of them, then it would just be Hillary Clinton as a communist, or Barack Obama as a communist, or whoever. The, the whole point, I mean, the, the, there's an interesting kind of thing too, and this is, you know, I think there's an element of this in, a less pronounced element of this in the UK, but there's definitely an element too, that communism no longer exists so we must create it, right? The disappearance of, of actually existing socialism was, in a sense, an unfortunate turn of events for the, for the right because it, it sort of cost them a bete noir and then they had to wait for... I mean, they kind of recouped when the, the Islamic terrorism thing became a thing. But, but now, this kind of imaginary communist threat has become the coin of the realm. And I... It seems like there's less of that in the UK, but it seems like there's that as well. Yeah, there's definitely what you might call anti-communism without communism. It, it, in the UK, that's definitely a phenomenon as well. It's usually routed through the whole anti-woke thing. And the way people talked about Corbyn on the right was often coloured by kind of Cold War rhetoric, not just about, you know, the Soviet Union and claims that he's pro-Russian or that kind of thing, but also like stuff about Trotskyism. The, the Labour right is completely obsessed with the idea that Trotskyists were trying to take over the party. Quite a shocking extent, if you read some of the leaked documents, internal documents from the Labour Party on this, the paranoia <laughs> of, of party bureaucrats about Trotskyists is quite something. If only Trots were so effective. Right, yeah, um, I know, that's, that's a really <laughs> funny thing, like the... Uh, it, there's a sense in which I wish the left was as, as unified, as powerful or whatever as the sort of conservatives make it out in their paranoid, delusional, whatever. But in fact, I mean, it's just a, it's just a fantasy. Yeah, and this, it brings us back to the point about sectarianism and so on on the left. It, it's not just a left-wing phenomenon. Liberalism, mainstream liberalism is actually extremely sectarian. And that's what we've discovered in the last... In the UK, at least. I think it was probably more clear in the US in some ways. But in the UK, we've realised this during the Corbyn era, and especially around Brexit, that you had a kind of liberal impossibilism that emerged, where people just simply refused to engage with another kind of politics because, because they were opposed to it on the basis of, this doesn't serve our political objectives, therefore, screw you, and we're happy to have a Tory government, effectively. Yeah. As a result, they wouldn't actually, most of them wouldn't say that, but effectively that's what happened. You know, you had the Liberal Democrats splitting the uh, Remain vote ostensibly to stop Brexit, but of course it actually achieved the total opposite. Right.
and yeah, I mean, I could talk about this for hours, to be honest. It's funny. I feel sorry in a way for the Lib Dems in this respect, that they're living the experience that the Republican Party did in the 1990s when Bill Clinton basically took the political platform or the kind of Dole and Bob Dole end of the Republican Party, said it's mine now. And then the Republicans were like, wait, what the hell? That's why you had in the Clinton era, the sort of special prosecutor, the whole Ken Starr thing. And the, I mean, it's ironic that the Monica Lewinsky thing didn't get taken into the courts because really there's a, there's a non-consensual element to that that should have been the subject of a legal investigation. But the problem for the Republicans in that moment was that Clinton had essentially taken their platform and made it his. And that's been the problem for the, I mean, that was why the moderate wing of the Republican Party, if you want to call it that, just disintegrated. And what you get is this hard right end of the Republican Party that's very much out of step with what Americans want if you look at the polling data. So they need to engage in this sort of voter suppression, gerrymandering, so that they can have minority government. What you have in the UK is liberal Democrats being like, okay, this is our platform. And Keir Starmer being like, yeah, no, it's mine now. Like, this is, this is now the Labour Party platform. And, and the question for the, for the Lib Dems is where they go now, because there really is no niche for that, that Starmer isn't already insistent upon claiming for, for the Labour Party. Yeah, it's put them in a very strange position. And the Lib Dems, I think, are, are running on what we call nimbyism over here. I don't know if you have that in the US. We but certainly um, do. <laughs> yeah, the, the main planks in terms of, because they're campaigning mainly locally these days for obvious reasons, not just because of the electoral cycle. And most of their positioning is just opposing development projects in various constituencies and stealing conservative middle-class votes on that basis. Whether they'll try and run nimbyism at the national level, that's, that's going to be a hard sell, I think. What is interesting is that there probably is a, a shift happening behind closed doors where Labour may signal to the Lib Dems, if they can't get enough seats in the next general election, that they could forge some kind of pact. The Lib Dems have already made it clear that they won't work with the Tories again. So there are forms of solidarity among some Liberals, but they don't necessarily favour a, a radical or progressive politics. Of course, it would be great to see the Tories go, but if what we get is just kind of a breathing space between one horrible right-wing shit show and another horrible right-wing shit show, that's not going to cut it. You yeah. Know? Um, Fingers crossed about the Tories going, but the, I mean, the, the Lib Dems can, yeah. really, can really fill a niche for Labour in the sense that they can be the people proposing the shitty things that Labour actually secretly wants to do. And you're just like, oh, those terrible Lib Dems. Well, we have to, we have to submit to this because of the coalition. Um, oh, yeah. yeah. So, but, you know, they create a sort of plausible deniability for the Labour Party, which, which they could really yeah. use. Certainly. Absolutely. I can definitely see that happening in a way that probably. Labour couldn't do with the SNP, for example, although the SNP is now imploding and Labour is hoping to usurp as many of their seats as possible. Right. It's it's unlikely that voters for the, that SNP voters are then just going to be like, well, yeah, maybe the Tories really, that, that could be a good look for me. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the Tories are the party of unionism in, in Scotland, but it's very much a kind of, you know, it is what it is. It's It's the party of the ruling state of affairs. So... Every, everyone can see it's a shambles right now, most of all people in Scotland. So, you know, if Labour can position themselves as a softer face of the union or a face of federalism or even a face of 
yeah, we could live with a referendum. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. Plus progressive social policies, then, yeah, some people are going to vote for them. Yeah, um, I think that's probably true. I think that's probably yeah. true. Well, that's all we've got time for for today. Thanks, for everybody, for listening. And uh, we'll be back in a couple of weeks with more chat about politics. Let's talk next time about more positive stuff because talking about yes. how the left sucks is kind of depressing. Let's, let's, let's come up with some more positive stuff for next time. What do you say? I agree. Yeah, we need more of that. All right. Well, that's all from us. Thanks so much for listening. Thank you. Goodbye.